This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Fiona Lowe, welcome back to Better Reading. Thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to be here. We've chatted several times now, haven't we? We have. I've even yeah. been in the office in Sydney, you know, be, well, not for a long time because, you yeah. know, COVID. I think your first time was in the office. Yeah, maybe it was. 2017, Daughter of Mine, was that it? I can't quite recall. Yeah. That's right I've been and I remember chatting to you about home fires, yeah. Yeah. Okay, let me introduce you. Fiona has been a midwife, a sexual health counsellor and a family support worker, an ideal career for an author who writes novels about family and relationships. She spent her early years in Papua New Guinea, where without television, reading was the entertainment, and it set up a lifelong love of books. Although she often rewrote the endings, I love that, I do the same, I do it in my head. Although she often rewrote the endings of books, it was the birth of her first child that prompted her to write her first novel. A recipient of the prestigious USA Reader Award, and two Australian Ruby Awards, Fiona writes books that are set in small country towns. They feature real people facing difficult choices and explore how family ties and relationships impact their decisions. Her latest novel, The Money Club, is a gripping exploration of modern greed and the moral quagmire of those who trade on the bonds of their closest friendship and family for money. You know the person that comes to mind as well as... You know, you probably know that Caddage, that Sydney woman that ripped off her own family. Ah, uh, Melissa Caddick. Yes. Well, yes. Uh, when I pitched when I pitched the Money Club to my publisher, and of course they're Harper Collins, they're based in Sydney, and the first thing they said was, "Oh, Melissa Caddick," and I said, "Yeah, well, um, who?" <laughs> yeah. And this was just before it all hit and now, of course, we all know this. But actually the inspiration for this book happened in my hometown where I live and Melissa Caddick only ripped off $38 whereas the bloke... I based the story on ripped off my town to the tune of $89 million. Oh, my God. Is that through investment and money schemes? It was. It was through an investment stock market scam which perhaps didn't start off as a scam, perhaps started off with the right intent, but then when money started to be lost, it turned fast into a Ponzi scheme. And then there was a decade later, there was another one that started close by to where we live, but that sort of incorporated um, a lot more of Victoria and that was a racing scheme. But um, I do recall when it went belly up, all the articles about the people who were affected. And because a Ponzi scheme, is, which is a sham investment. There's no money ever generated by a Ponzi scheme. It depends on later investors. That money is used to pay dividends to the early investors. So it looks like people are earning money, but actually it's just shuffling around and yeah. most of the money is absorbed by the con artist. 
But um, sorry, what was I saying? I was saying that when when it went belly up, it does involve, it's on networks. That's the networks and the trust that is an integral part of a Ponzi scheme's success. So it takes down entire extended families. It takes down entire communities. And it took down an entire section of the Ford factory in my town. Because oh they wow! Each other, so they all invested because it's like this is an opportunity, and yeah. when people are suggesting because the, that that their friends take advantage of this opportunity, they're doing that because they've they've made a little bit of money. Yeah, so they're telling the truth. The truth they the know. Truth. Yeah. yeah, but of course you can imagine how it goes down. And then when when you are in a financial crisis, normally the first people you can turn to are your family or your friends, but mm. they've gone down with you. So mm. the fear and pain is immense. Mm. Do you know what? I'm always flawed with these stories and you hear so many of them. I remember travelling, this is years ago, with a celebrity and she told me that she she lost all her money, and I would have thought she was quite wealthy. She lost all her money to a Ponzi scheme that her manager set up, like it was him, and she lost millions. And I, I, I think celebrities ripped off by managers is a whole that that yeah. seems to happen. I mean, I it happened to Elton John. It happened like well, yeah, half a dozen people. I've gone blank, but you know, it happens a lot. I mean, have yeah. I lost everything? Yeah. Wow. Okay. I didn't know that. Do you know, I I wonder what it says about a person because I am completely distrustful (laughs) of any of that. I guess I don't have the desire to make money quickly. So I don't, I'm not interested and I don't, but in the same way, even when I set up my business, Better Reading, there are so many people that wanted to give me money because they thought it was a great idea Mm -hmm. and they wanted to be part of it, but I just couldn't take it. I just, I couldn't take it. Not that I didn't want to share it, but I thought, I don't even know how I give that back. I'm not doing it. And maybe it comes down to a little bit of the need to control. I like to control my life. And, um, you know, I suppose the more you give away or the more that you involve other people, then the less control that you have. But what I wanted to explore in the Money Club, so as we know with Melissa Caddick, when when it all came out to light and then it went on to they've made a telly movie and, you know, everyone's fascinated about the person who perpetrated the scam. But in the Money Club, I wanted to look at the ordinary everyday people that got yeah. caught up in the scam and I wanted to look at what is need and what is greed. Is it greedy to want to own your own home? Is it greedy to want to educate your own children? Is it greedy to want to own a Lamborghini? And who makes that decision? And where's the line in the sand? Uh, so that's what I wanted to look at. We certainly do get um, a snapshot. I do give a snapshot of the of the good life and the high life and what it's like to have plenty of money. But then the bulk of the book is looking at the fallout and the interpersonal relationships. And of course, the big question is, where's Brad, who came up with the scheme, and where the hell is the money? Mm-hmm. Let me tell you this little anecdote. And I think it is exactly, in terms of money, the person that I am. You might know this, a lot of our listeners do. I look after my two great nephews on a Monday. Well, I only do one now because the other one's grown up. But many few years back now, when they were little, I'd pick them up from school in my car and drive them home. And one time, Connor, the older one, said to me, Cheryl, if you had all the money in the world, 
what kind of car would you buy? Oh, I said, easy. I'd buy a Suzuki Vitara. And he's like, what kind of car is that? And I said, that's the car you're in, sweetheart. (laughs) (laughs) This is that, you know, I don't want more than that. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, that that's the other thing we look at. Certainly there are people that aspirational and wealth is everything, but the people in my book, most of them were just wanting to improve their life a little bit. That's, That's not right. to say that when the money started rolling in there for a while that they didn't perhaps embrace and jump on the bandwagon and make some decisions that prior to that that they would never, ever have done. And Bertie and Mike, the retired couple, certainly did that. They became quite aspirational. But, you know, then we've got Lucy and Jack who really just wanted to um, change their life by paying down their mortgage and Jack could stop being a fly-in, fly-out engineer. Lucy could stop being a sole parent two weeks out of four and they could both be in the same bed every night and they could have another child. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that that seems to me not to be an outrageous aspiration. No, that's right. Um, I think the biggest crime of all is ripping off old people and their money. That has to be the worst crime of all. Yeah. And, you know, I I don't know about you, but I get a scam on my phone at least twice Mm -hmm. a week, you know, um, whether it's the hey mum. I always laugh Mm -hmm. if I get the hey mum one because, you know, my kids would, you know, it's like... (laughs) If you've lost your phone, you don't text off someone and wait, wait, like this made no sense, you know, uh, fortunately. And uh, but like just yesterday, a message had been I don't pick up any phone number that isn't in my contacts. Um, I figure I'll ring them back if if, yeah. if it's legit. And of yeah. course, yesterday I got the recording about, you know, we've taken $325 out of your account. If this is wrong, you know, ring us back or click on this. It's like, yeah, major, major. But I do am concerned. I have very elderly parents who are quite switched on, mm. but we have now told them, you know, just let everything go through to the answering machine. Just let mm. everything. And just if it's your friends, pick up. And if mm. it isn't, well, just let it go because it's too much of a risk. Mm-hmm. It really is. And, I, you know, like Melissa, I mean, she ripped off her own parents. Yes, she took that, their retirement Well, money. they do. They do. This is what, what people do. And it's all because it's network and uh, trust. But she's not the only one. When I was uh, researching to write the book and I remembered um, the bloke that had that had ripped off my town, so I revisited that. But if your listeners want to get off on Ponzi schemes, all they have to do is type in Australian Ponzi schemes into YouTube and there's about six 60 minutes um, wow. episodes. And there was a bloke in Perth and he, his brother had died and his brother left his wife all his wealth. And this bloke, the brother-in-law, came in and said, I'll look after it for you and lost the lot, like stole it, you know, mm-hmm. as part of a Terrible. Yeah. And for Melissa too, that that story, like how much possessions could you have? I mean, she had that much, you know, well, bags she, and dresses and But I rings. mean, I don't think there's anyone, any, like as I say to people, one of the problems we have is understanding why someone would do this. But as I say, you're not looking at a healthy human being. Mm. Their moral code is so far away from a normal person who is trusting and caring um, to be unrecognisable. And they normally have narcissistic tendencies and Mm. they have to because there's no regret. 
No. And yeah. guilt or they don't no. lie awake at and night? That's, you know, that's a mental health condition, you know, mm. whether they're a sociopath or a narcissist or whatever. And, I mean, Melissa Caddick apparently, allegedly, had she'd been a bookkeeper with someone years before mm. she'd taken money. So this mm. was not dissimilar. It was just done on a grander scale. But, and, and touching on relationships here, I mean, I've been astounded how her parents have stood by her, you know, like they well, seem. True. But yeah. that whole, well, yes and no, they're going to lose their house, which they means that then they lost absolutely everything because I believe that, you know, she used money of theirs to to purchase it. But then there's the whole denial and we mm. come to denial. I mean, would you really want to honestly believe that the child that you loved and cared for and raised ended up being so, so dishonest? Mm. That would be very hard to mm. do. And mm. so sometimes it's just easier to trick yourself into saying, well, no, she wasn't like that at all. Mm. Yeah, that's hard, isn't it? Okay, I want to go back. What are we up to? Book number uh, this is my seventh uh, book with HarperCollins, sort of women's general fiction, but mm-hmm. but overall I think it's 37. Mm-hmm. Now I want to go back to when it all started because I remember it. I can't quite remember the story, but I remember being uh-huh. parts of it and very, very interesting and that you really, your first market was the US market. Is that right? Well, I started off, I had a lot of trouble having children. Mm-hmm. And I had seven years of infertility. So when I finally had oh. the baby, I was in no great desire to belt straight back to work. And I was sort of thinking about, you know, what I would be doing. And I was about starting to negotiate returning part-time and stuff. And I heard an interview on on the radio, on ABC Radio, talking to someone from Mills and Boone saying we read every single manuscript that we've ever read. And uh, I was not a great romance reader. I'd read Pride and Prejudice, <laughs> but a friend had given me two years previously a little tiny pink and white book called A Medical Romance, and I was a nurse. And I read this book very quickly, and I thought, oh, it's just like the flying doctors, like country practice, you know, that sort of thing. And the big tradition when I was a student nurse was that you would, if you weren't on duty, you'd gather in the nurse's home on a Thursday night and you'd watch uh, the flying doctors with everyone, and the big thing was to guess the medical condition before the end, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Lawyers lawyers do it. I I thought you were going to say, and the big thing was to see if we could kiss the mate. Doctor. Oh, <laughs> well, you know, maybe whatever. But anyway, that was always the big, that was, you know, the big thing. And and we'd, you know, say, oh, they got that right, or they got that totally yeah. <laughs> Anyway, I'd read this book thinking it was like that, and it was easy to read. So I figured I could write something like that. Easy to read, must be easy to write. Yeah, nah. So yeah. I was completely deluded. I don't know. I mean, I'd I'd always written a journal and I wrote long letters home when I travelled and people would say, oh, you know, you should write a book, you know, you can write well. But it had never really crossed my radar. So knowing nothing, I was pegging out the washing and the nappies and I got a bit of an idea and I came in and I opened up the Word document on the brand new computer that we'd had for like two weeks. I didn't even know how to format a document. And bashed out three chapters and sent them to Sydney. And they very kindly said, uh, sent it back saying, no, actually, it's got to go to London. And uh, I think the day I dropped it in the letterbox to go to London, my husband came home and said, this is job in America. And three and a half weeks later, we were there. Ah, right. Okay. So you were writing there. Yeah, Whereabouts? So 
uh, we were in the Midwest in Madison, Wisconsin. Oh, right. Okay. Up to our eyeballs in snow in winter and really humid in summer. Yeah. Anyway, and I joined um, the Romance Writers of America and, uh, you know, my writing uh, journey would have been a heck of a lot easier if I had had any true understanding of genre fiction <laughs> and what was required in a romance. But, you know, I, I had too many characters and I had too many stories. Anyway. I finally, it took me uh, 10 years of elapsed time, four books I wrote and crossed the world twice in that time and had another baby. And I finally, and I just became steely determined because I'd never failed at anything that I'd really tried before. And this was I, I just want to interrupt to ask yeah. you one thing. Like, yeah. so you'd had your second baby, you're going back and forward. Was writing your main gig, not that you were published then, but was it that you were oh, dedicating? I had another job. I'd gone back to oh, work. Oh, okay. I had right. gone back to work part time, so the writing was sort of on the side. And um, anyway, I finally, I, I became steely determined. I read a lot, and I finally cracked it. And then they said, "Oh, you know, we'd like you to write another one." I was like, "Oh." <laughs> So I wrote. Did people do that? People do that exactly. I told you I knew nothing. Uh, so I I wrote a few more. And, I, you know, when they said that, I couldn't even conceive writing another 50,000 word. These books are little. They're 250 yeah. uh, pages. And they are very, very much a deep dive and intensive look at one couple. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Can I tell you my first experience of Mills and Boons? Uh, it wasn't my genre and I didn't read them, but many, many years ago, I worked at Dimmick's on the shop floor oh, yes. in George Street. And this is a long time ago because people, I used to see so many women come up to the counter, open up their pay packet, you know, back in the days when yes, it was in yeah. one of those manila rooms. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, get their cash out and have three or four or five even Mills and Boons. And those people would come in every week that they would pay. Oh, yeah. That they're, they were paid, yeah. That And they're buying, you know, they're, they're buying that sigh. I mean, I still remember that happy ending in Pride and Prejudice, that sigh of, oh, you know. <sighs> and yeah. so I, I wrote a few and then um, something happened that I never expected and that was I got some... Uh, new writing muscles that I wanted to flex and I wanted to go beyond this one couple 
And the medical stuff was easy for me because, you know, that was my background and that's why I did that. They say, write what you know. But write what you know, having some idea about the genre, I would advise anyone for today. Like, don't make all the <laughs> don't make the mistakes I made, your life will be much easier. So then I decided that I wanted to write a different style of of romance and I wrote. How many had you written by then? Oh, I don't know. Oh, I think I'd written about eight. Right, okay. And I wrote Boomerang Bride. And um, the American market is huge, much bigger than Australia, and I lived in the States for three years, so I understood that. So I wrote Boomerang Bride, which was, you know, basically the Australian stranded in America and I I put in every miscommunication and misunderstanding that that I had experienced. And I wrote that book and had a long story short because um, the global financial crisis really impacted on it. But it eventually, after 37 agent and 15 um, publishing house, um, it got published finally. Wow. Uh, So that was the book that won the Rita. Mm. So I then wrote another Hang on. I just want to go back to the agents and the, tell oh, me yeah. about that experience because, I mean, oh. you've ju- you've just glossed over it, but it's hard, oh, isn't it's it? Very hard. So this was, I wrote it in, this was 2010, I think. Yeah. 2010. And literally I wrote the end and it was all polished and ready to go. And, you know, the global financial crisis hit and New York publishing just imploded. You know, they were mm-hmm. off like staff at a rapid rate. So I started the whole applying for agents thing and, you know, how soul-destroying is that? Mm. 37, over a period of 11 months. I didn't even know there were that many agents. Yeah, so (laughs) off I went. Uh, And, you know, you start off with your top layer and, you know, and you're sending them out and they either reply or they say no or they don't even bother to reply and Anyway, we plugged away and then I got an agent that really loved the book and was very passionate about it, but then she couldn't sell it, okay? Right. And then there was, by then it was 2011, and this one of the things that had come out of the global financial crisis was this thing called an e-book. And mm-hmm. some of the, I wasn't going to touch a tiny little publishing house with a 10-foot barge pole, but um, Harlequin started a digital first line called Carina Press. And I said to my husband, this book's too good to sit on my computer. I don't want it to go to Karina Press because they don't pay advances, but, you know, maybe I should. So six weeks later they said, yeah, we'd like to, we'll, you know, we'll acquire it. And uh, upshot of that, the good thing was that they actually printed a dozen copies so that it could be entered into the reader because back then only print books could go into the reader. So Boomerang Bride, uh, amazingly, was the first digital first book ever to win a reader. Wow. Wow. And how many copies did you sell digitally? Oh, I can't even remember. It was, I mean, a lot. And then it went to print. So when it won the reader, it went into print and then the Australian office published it with the best cover ever completely ace the American cover. So then I wrote another I wrote another wedding series set in the States and then I got a contract from uh, Penguin Random House in America, Berkeley, and then I ran into So the first book did quite well and then the second book they were restructuring. Exactly. So I sold to Penguin. The following year when the second book came out, Penguin Random House were merging and they sacked about 40% of their staff, including my editor, 
changed direction and didn't really get the book out of the warehouse. And then they said, you didn't sell many books and we're not publishing those sorts of books anymore. And I was like, oh, God. (laughs) Okay. And writing books set in America as an Australian, even though I lived there, was it's an extra challenge. The language they we speak differently so it was always and my kids used to laugh and say we know when you're sitting a book in America because you know suddenly we're having supper and we're eating cookies and you know stuff like that and I said and to going my, on a vacation yeah I said to my husband I just want to write a book set in my own back garden and I want to do a cast of characters and I want to do whatever I want and it might have a happy ending and it might not have a happy ending I just want to write a book again completely if you'd asked me you know, years and years ago, would I be doing that? I would have said probably not, you know, but here I am. So I wrote Daughter of Mine, which was set in the Western District, which is not very far away from where I live. Uh, And I looked at a family and generational secrets and lies. And I pitched that to HarperCollins and the rest is history. That's how I started writing these big novels that I'm writing now, which are very much about family and community with a social issue at their heart. Mm, and relationships. Why do you think people are drawn to that, readers? Why do you, because you are so beloved. I mean, our oh, well, audience you. loves you. Uh, <laughs> look, I think because I think we well, we read for a whole variety of different reasons. Mm. I think one of the reasons many of us read is that we can take a, a safe journey mm. in someone else's shoes and we're not at risk. Mm. So... The, I write very much contemporary fiction. You know, the the issues that, that my characters experience, someone in your family may have experienced someone down the road, someone you know. It's not outrageous to mm. that. And and the other thing is I think they I get a lot of mail, especially in books like Home Fires, which was about bush, a small town, the impact of, of a town being raised by a bushfire and any Australian we know that that is just such a real issue, although mm. people perhaps not so much. But and um, I get a lot of letters from readers saying, oh, "I didn't realise, you know, and that was I learned something from this." Mm. And the other one that I get similar to that is a home like ours, which dealt with uh, quite a bit of racism and prejudice in a small country town. And I also get letters people saying, "Oh, I'd never that had never really occurred to me, or I didn't realize, or I've never met a refugee, and so it was really interesting. I learned a lot. I mean, I get I get hate mail for that book as well, but <laughs> but mostly I get people saying, "Thank you, I hadn't thought about it that way." And that is one of the reasons. There's always a theme in my novels. With this one, it's what is need and what is greed. And I throw up all sorts from my different characters. They all have different opinions. And so by the end of the book, a reader will have been assaulted by numerous opinions, some of which have never occurred to them before or they may never have heard. And I just hope by the end that their approach to that social issue might be more inclusive. Mm. Yeah. I do think readers have a particular empathy as well. I mean, I think they, you know, and a lot of our readers read so extensively. Oh, yes, they read genre fiction, but they read everything. I want to go back, and this happened to me recently, and I just, I, you being a nurse, I, I was in hospital um, very, very recently, just a few weeks ago, and my family was very worried about me, and everybody kept saying, you know, you need to go to a private room. We need to move her to a private room. And I was sharing, uh, I was in a room with four people. Mm-hmm. And I I was buying into that day one, day two. But because I was there for so long, day three and day four, I changed my mind because 
the people that were coming and going, I was hearing their stories. I was talking to people, and most people were only there one or two nights, so I'd only have them for a little bit. But I, And I got really interested. It really was such a great distraction for me to hear other people's stories. Oh, that's right. And I think we were having this chat after tennis yesterday at coffee. We are in our own echo chambers. We yeah. socialise with people with similar values yes. and, and morals to us, you know. And, I mean, I work from home, so I have a pretty much a routine. So my my world is quite narrow these days now that my children have finished school and I'm not, you know, on committees and things like that. But the more people we meet who have different experiences from us, the more accepting we are or uh, of everyone's a little bit different but yeah uh, but that's what and I, I enjoyed to hear it was interesting to me to hear their life story mm-hmm. yeah. yeah that's right well yeah. as authors we're always interested in people's love stories because we're thinking hmm, can we put that in a book <laughs> and I didn't ever think you could, <laughs> I didn't think you could ever find it in a hospital but you do you absolutely do oh well the world goes through a hospital and not just the patients, uh, the staff, you've got everyone, yes. the cleaners who have a huge education level or they might be because they might be postgraduate student. Like, you know, yes. you make an assumption, oh, the cleaner won't have had much of an education, but you'll discover that that Syrian refugee that's cleaning that floor has a PhD in engineering, but he cannot work in engineering in Australia. Oh, yeah, I saw. I heard so many stories. But he or she are prepared to change their life mm-hmm. and that, that, that they will take on that job. And to me, that is just... Just a massive mark of respect. So many people just don't understand the real refugee story, which is why I wrote a book about it. Mm. In a home like ours. Mm. Also, too, for me, um, nursing and nurses, second to none. Amazing. Oh. <laughs> every one of them, every one of them deserved a medal. I'm, glad, I'm sorry you were in hospital, but I'm glad it was a positive experience. Mm, unbelievable. But I didn't realize until I was there for a few days that it's also a place where you can hear stories. Yep, absolutely. And mm. everyone, everyone has a story. And you know, we make assumptions about people because we don't always hear their story, you know. Mm. Um, and we choose that's what people say, oh, this would never happen, or I've never heard of that. And it's like, well, maybe you haven't heard about it just because someone has decided that they weren't prepared to share that with you. You know, we don't have to wear, I know on social media, everyone seems to wear their entire life, you know, out there, but really most of us don't. We we make decisions about what we're prepared to share with people and what we want to keep back to protect ourselves. I want to ask you one, one last question. How has interacting with readers been different for you? Because I guess when you started writing, there wasn't that direct interaction where Absolutely. now... Yeah. How do you think that's changed you as a writer? Uh, uh, well, I absolutely love meeting readers in, you know, when I'm on book tour and stuff, and that's that's a positive experience always. I think that especially in the last 10 years, authors are now we're very accessible whereas we didn't used to be very accessible. I can choose not to look at Goodreads and I can choose not to read reviews, but I get direct messages and sometimes you think, really? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Really? How would you feel if someone said that to you? Mm -hmm. Uh, But always polite, 
Uh, but, yeah, sometimes I, I think that um, being that available is not always good for one's creativity, but you have mm. to, you have to, and so, I think it's a good idea sometimes to to withdraw for a while. I'm currently in edits for the 2024 book, which are causing me a bit of angst, and um, I'm not interested in talking or listening to anyone at the moment. I'm just needing to focus on that, and I think that that's important, and uh, uh, that you do step away. I mean, I am out there; I'm available. People can find me if they want to. But every now and then, a few couple of times a year, to take a step back. Mm. And- no, I agree. I agree. And also, you've got to kind of um, let your own head sort it out to start oh, with. Oh, that's really. right. And yeah. also, you know, Fiona Lowe on social media is absolutely what what I choose. If anyone who looks at my social media, they know that I like to read, that I'm interested in gardening, that I like a glass of wine and I like to travel. But I definitely curate and choose what I put up there, you know. Oh, absolutely. I say to people, it's got to be a pamphlet. It has to be. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Fiona, always lovely chatting. Congratulations on the new book. It's called The Money Club. And I guess we'll see you with the next one. In next year, hopefully. Okay, thank you so much for the chat. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere, everywhere. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.